Hello, I'm Mark Abbott, and welcome to another episode of the Family Law Podcast by Pump Court Chambers. You join me for a hot off the press episode following the decision of Mr. Justice Mostyn in Kazaleh and Abu Zalaf, which was handed down on the 17th of October 2022. And for the very eager listener, the reference is 2022 EWFC 119. I'm delighted to be joined by the solicitor for the successful respondent, Sarah Hannell of Alexio Fisher Phillips. Sarah is the managing partner at AFP and the legal directories are simply littered with complimentary things such as a razor sharp and analytical mind, which is, is a very nice thing to say. Welcome, Sarah. Uh, hello, Mark. Um, and Sarah, of course, joins me to talk about her recent case. And I won't, I won't do her bit for her, but for those who don't know it, this is a case where the parties married on the first of June 2012, having signed a prenup two days previously. They separated in August 2013 and Decree Nisai was pronounced on the 15th of November 2013. There were financial remedy proceedings reported as BN and MA, but Decree Absolute was never granted. According to the wife, they reconciled. And so remarkably, this was all about her trying to rescind the Decree Nisai, set aside the financial order basically start again. Um, so I've set out the absolute rudimentary basics, but for the for the unfamiliar listeners, I wonder whether a slightly more in-depth summary of the case might help. So yes, as you've said, this was an unusually, this was an application by the petitioner wife to rescind the decree nisi. And the most difficult thing for the judge is that there is almost no case law on petitioner wives trying to rescind, rescind their own decree nisi. And then the husband had cross-applied for the decree to be made absolute. And the probably the most interesting thing about the case from a, a general legal point of view is that the judge said, well, I've got to analyze which is the right test for each of these applications. And the very firm conclusion that he came to was that it should be the same test for each application, that it shouldn't be easy for a petitioner who has obtained a decree nisi to be able to go along to court and say, I don't want that decree nisi anymore, can you please set it aside, that that should be a pretty steep test. Um, and that you, and in particular, that a decree nisi was an order of the court, and just as with any order of the court, there needed to be a very good reason to have that set aside. And the conclusion he came to was that it needed to be about some, it needed to be demonstrably unjust to allow that decree to stand. It wasn't just a question of it's been several years of delay. It needed to be a clear injustice uh, before the order should be set aside. Um, and then just coming back to the facts. So the judge in fact knew these parties very well because after their separation in 2013, the wife had immediately applied for maintenance pending suit and had asked for a level of maintenance that was three times the level of her prenuptial agreement. And so the husband, we, not surprisingly, applied back to court to say we ought to have our prenuptial agreement recognised. The judge, Mr Justice Mostyn, again, agreed with us. Uh, and then there were two further financial hearings over the following eight months, uh, also both in front of Mr Justice Mostyn. So he knew the case well and the, his um, prenuptial agreement decision had already been reported. So by the time these parties came back to back in front of him eight years later, he'd already got the measure of just how 
unpleasant their relationship was and how unpleasant it had always been. And the particularly unusual factor of this case, as he identified, is that the husband was essentially saying that I, my unreasonable behaviour justified the original decree nisi. I've carried on being unreasonable. Our marriage has carried on being horrible. There's nothing that justifies setting aside this decree nisi because, frankly, it's as bad as it ever was. Whereas the wife had to try to convince the judge, and I think this was always going to be an uphill struggle, she had to convince the judge that, in fact, after this unpleasant three hearings in court in 2013 to 14, they had had a reconciliation and things had been happy again. Um, and so a lot of the hearing centred around the facts of this couple. But I don't think ultimately, and I think this was the judge's aim, I don't think ultimately the facts of the case made any significant difference to the conclusions he came to on the legal test because he was very clear that he wanted to set down a test that would bring together all of the jurisprudence on rescission of decree nisi and on the making of decree absolute when a respondent applies and have one coherent test that would apply. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, as you say, it's unusual and you end up seeing the judgment, this very odd situation where your, your client's counsel was, was cross-examining the wife and saying, no, he was awful, wasn't he? And, it's um it's really the wrong way around isn't it it was so it was very odd but it was also very clear to us that that was the right logical approach that we needed to be taking that we wanted to demonstrate to the court that the decree nisi based on my client's unreasonable behavior and the irretrievable breakdown of the marriage that that was still a valid document to some extent i think the judge thought that we were worrying more about that than we needed to because I think the judge felt that there was a it wasn't for us to show that things were still just as unpleasant it was very much for the wife to show that that things had reconciled to the extent that the decree nisi was was invalid and he went a long way down that line that he said it's not just a question of you showing that the decree nisi was made in error You've got to go further than that. You've got to show that it would be demonstrably unjust to allow that decree to stand. And the fact that both parties had come to court saying, yes, now we accept that the marriage has broken down irretrievably, made that a very difficult challenge for the wife. She wasn't arguing that it was unfair for her to end up divorced. She was simply saying, I'd like to be divorced based on a new petition because if I can do a new petition in 2022, then I'm gonna get more money under my prenuptial agreement. Um, so that did make it harder for her, but to be fair to the judge, I don't, I don't believe that this decision would have been any different had there been a slightly different scenario where there had been a, 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 you know, perhaps a slightly better relationship, but still not equivalent to a marriage. He was very careful to focus on the law and to go back through all these 160 years of jurisprudence. Well, yes, it's classic, classic for this judge. Um, there is a comment, though, quite early on in the judgment, which, which possibly does suggest a certain slant where he, where he says this is about money and just money. Uh, and, and obviously it's, it's, it's right that she does stand to do an awful lot better under the prenuptial agreement if she succeeded. Yes, he says it's not to proclaim to the world the true facts as she now says they are. It's not about correcting a false finding as to her status. It's not about correcting a public injustice. 
it's about money and only about money. And that really comes from the case uh, that he particularly relied on in the judgment, which was Owen and Owen, which was really looking for some public interest reason before an order was set aside. But if, as I said, if, if she was coming along to court now saying, it's not right for me to be divorced based on that petition, because we can see from what happened after the petition, after the decree NISI, that it, the facts that we thought were true were no longer true. If she'd come along saying that, then she might have had a better chance. But because she came along saying, absolutely, this marriage has broken down irretrievably. And yes, he is a really unpleasant man that I'm married to. There was nothing, there was no public interest in overturning the decree NISI. The only interest, it wasn't an incorrect decree. The marriage had broken down irretrievably. My client had behaved unreasonably. The only thing that would change would be that the wife would get more money under her prenuptial agreement. Yeah, uh, and that makes perfect sense. Um, but one issue that I thought, again, was that he's, he goes to great pains to remind himself that marriages come in all shapes and sizes. There's reference to, to Martha and George and who's afraid of Virginia Woolf and says, well, notwithstanding their appalling mutual loathing of each other, it was, it was a functioning marriage. And in this case, it seems to be common ground that before the original, well, before the decree Nisai, the marriage was dreadful. And after the decree Nisai, the relationship was dreadful. Um, I mean, is it quite hard to square the ultimate conclusions that there wasn't a reconciliation when actually it sounds like it was bad before and it was bad afterwards? Well, and that was very much the wife's case, or it became the wife's case once the, the, we, we understood the direction of travel. That the wife's case was, yes, we accept that the marriage was pretty awful during the period that we say was a reconciliation, but it was really awful beforehand as well. What was quite difficult, of course, was that they'd actually been married for such a short period of time. They'd, in fact, been together on and off almost 18, 19 years. They got married 10 years after their relationship started. Um, but they'd only actually stayed in that marriage living together for about 12 to 14 months. So there was quite a short period. And during that 12 to 14 months was when the unreasonable behaviour took place that led to the original decree nicely. So it was quite hard for anyone to point to a positive period of this relationship. But what Miss Justice Mostyn did, and I think must be right, is to say, well, we can point to the things that you don't need to have in a marriage. You don't legally need to have love or cohabitation or children or a sexual relationship, but there must be something. If we're going to define something as marriage more than just a piece of paper, there must be something that looks like a marriage. And the conclusion he came to is that, that, that there must be some expectation at the time of the marriage that the spouses will share each other's society, comfort and assistance, some level of mutual support. And he accepted that, as with Martha and George, some marriages may degenerate. And I think his phrase is they might degenerate into antipathy, resentment and cruelty. But he went on to say, but nobody goes into marriage on that basis. And the same must apply if you are reconciling after a decree nicer. A reconciliation can't be based on antipathy, resentment and cruelty. It must be based on expectation of something better. And he looked at this and said, I can't see... I can't see any evidence that there was any expectation of society comfort and assistance at any point after the decree NISI. Maybe there was at the point you married in June 2012, but there really isn't any way I can identify that. And then and the phrase he, he ended up with is he said it would be an abuse of language 
to describe their resumed relationship as a marital reconciliation. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, it, of course, it does make sense. And then the wife's case goes against her because, of course, she's, she's saying it was awful afterwards, it was awful before. Then that feeds into Mr. Justin, uh, Mr. Justin Mostyn's logic that, that well, you can't found a reconciliation on awful relationship. So what was interesting is that your starting point might be if there's an eight-year gap between decree nisi being made and, in this case, ultimately the husband applying for decree absolute, you can see why your starting point must be, well, you know, it does seem likely that there's some reason why for those eight years the application hasn't been made. Obviously, there is something going on that keeps these people going back to each other, because this wasn't a case where they just had very little communication. They'd had masses of communication all the way through the eight year period, thousands and thousands of WhatsApp. So there was a lot happening in, in the relationship. So we could see why a starting point might be to think, well, actually, there's a, there is a relationship there. But what we needed to get the focus onto is what quality of that is that relationship? And is that relationship something that could ever be described as a reconciliation? As I said, ultimately, that wasn't really the, the, the main decisive issue in the case, because the main decisive issue was, was the original decree nisi based on the original facts properly made? And if it was properly made, that needed to be a very good reason to overturn it, particularly when both people are accepting that the marriage is broken down. And I can see that if there had been a really fantastic marriage in the intervening years, then that might have helped the judge decide that the decree in eyesight had been wrong and had been wrongly made. But it really would have needed to be not just a sort of tentative reconciliation, something better than we had here, but still quite tentative. I mean, I think it would have needed to be significantly better for the judge to have felt that that undermined the basis of the original decree nisi. And his finding was that the wife got nowhere near establishing that. Mm. Well, of course, it's interesting. One, one comment that uh, struck me at, at 59 was, well, it's two things, really. It's, it's the delay from the wife never applying for decree absolute. That's unexplained delay between decree nisi and then when she said they reconciled. And obviously, if you're, you know, if you're getting divorced, you want your decree absolute. She never, I don't think, really explained why not. And then, of course, the fact that when they reconciled, she never applied to get rid of the decree nisi. It was only after the marriage broke down again, which, again, a cynic might say, feeds into the comments about this is about money and only money. And it seems to really present difficulties in terms of, like you say, the sort of exceptional circumstances that would be needed. I think that's right. I mean, I think ultimately it wasn't decisive that she had failed to make her application to the court to rescind the decree nisi. I think the judge certainly thought it was strange. Uh, he thought it particularly strange because she had done a law degree in the intervening period. So I think he felt that when you've got these important documents from the court and the decree nisi is very clear on the face of it that the decree will be made absolute unless you show cause within six weeks why it shouldn't be. So I think he felt that when you've got documents like that, as, as the petitioner, as the applicant, the onus is really on you to do something about it if you reconcile. Possibly all of us as practitioners would say, well, we accept that our clients, they don't always come back to their lawyers in those circumstances and they don't always focus on what they ought to be doing. Um, so I think it would be fair to say that it didn't help her case. The fact that when they were reconciled, she'd done nothing about it. I mean, of course, if they had reconciled, it would then have been very easy 
to get the green eyesight rescinded. There's a very clear cut route. It's done on paper. It would be an application by both parties together on the basis of reconciliation. Decree NISI would be rescinded. That route is still there and, and she easily could have used it. So I think, yes, he said it speaks volumes that she didn't go ahead and do that. But ultimately, um, as, a, as I said, I think because of the fact that the marriage has definitely broken down now, accepted by everybody, and the behaviour has been bad and maintained, um, ultimately those were, the, those were the really crucial facts in the case. And there's a sort of a public policy argument really here, isn't, isn't there, that, 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 that again, looking back at that comment that it's it's about money only, that, that someone shouldn't be able to take advantage of the system to manipulate facts in order to get more money effectively. Well, I think um, in a way where this case may be relevant for longer than it might otherwise have mattered, because obviously degree nice size and degree absolutes are becoming a thing of the past. This, the case that's just been decided will still be relevant on conditional orders, but there will be quite a different scenario, obviously, because there won't be the issue of unreasonable behaviour and, and whatever. So it will have some relevance there. It definitely takes its place in the whole linear development of, of why we have two decrees and, and why you might or might not rescind the first one. But I think actually as much as that, it's relevant to this whole development of case law that any application to set aside a court order has to meet a pretty stringent test. And Mr. Justice Mostyn didn't ultimately agree with Mr. Justice Cobb, who had said we should have the same test for all family orders. If there's an application to be set aside, all orders in family proceedings should, should apply the same test unless there is a specific statutory provision which says something different. I think Mr. Justice Mostyn quite liked that idea that you would just have that one test. But I think he felt he couldn't go, he couldn't accept that because there's so much case law that is specific to decree nice size and decree absolute. And he felt he had to follow that. Nevertheless, he was coming to the same, broadly speaking, the same conclusion, which is that there must be a stringent test. That it isn't just a question of saying, I've got my decree nice size, actually, I've changed my mind. I don't think our marriage had broken down then. Can you please set aside the decree in eyesight? But now I'm going to start again because it has now. But it's got to be much more compelling than that before an order is going to be set aside. So it's definitely in this mindset that people should treat their court orders with real respect. Mm. Not imagine that the court is going to rewrite them because something's changed. Circumstances have changed. Well, perhaps we need the, uh, the Family Procedure Rules Committee to amend part four of this uniform test. But until then, certainly we have this extremely helpful job. Um, I just wanted to ask one thing. There's a side comment from the judge after having heard Lord Leggett's speech to the At A Glance conference about witness demeanour and effectively saying we really shouldn't place too much emphasis on witness demeanour. And I found that interesting, bearing in mind some of the authorities about the fairness of fact-finding hearings during COVID, remote, how, how video evidence can interfere with credibility assessments. And I, I just wondered as a practitioner what your thoughts were on that, as to not really part of the case, but more of an academic point. To be honest, I think it was quite a significant part of the case because there was such a dramatic difference between the quality of oral evidence given by the two different parties the wife stayed very calm and answered the questions and my client I'm afraid was somewhat less calm and I won't quote the entire description the judge gave of his evidence but he certainly was very argumentative uh, argumentative both with the wife's counsel James Ewans and with the judge 
it, it wasn't a, a comfortable experience as his solicitor, and I'm sure Brett Molyneux would agree, not very comfortable as his barrister. Um, but I thought, I, I've read Lord Leggett's speech, I wasn't at the Atterglance conference, but I thought it was very interesting that he's saying effectively, scientifically, we're very bad as human beings at judging whether people are telling the truth or not. And really their demeanor is no good guide to that whatsoever. So I can see why Mr. Justice Mostyn thought, well, actually that, that holds true in this case as well, that even though the wife was very calm and even though the husband was very much not calm, that didn't necessarily mean that the wife was more likely to be telling the truth. Interestingly though, he had insisted that all the evidence should be given um, in person because of the first day of our three-day hearing, we in fact ended up remote. I think it was a train strike day. So we were remote on day one. And um, the wife's counsel quite rightly said, well, it would seem unfair if my client starts to give her evidence remotely, whereas the husband gives all of his evidence in person. And the judge said, I'm absolutely not having that. We All evidence is going to be in person. And so we ended up losing, in fact, half a day of the hearing. Um, and started the following day. So how do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile the fact he was determined to have all evidence given orally in person? Um, and I think the answer to the question is that it's not, it isn't just about demeanour. It is also about what is said. And the judge is getting a set, not necessarily from what he sees or from the demeanour, but it does help him to have those arguments in front of him and to have them aired. And of course, there's also the, the, the guidance which says that a client may be, a witness may be lying on one point, but that doesn't mean that they're lying on other points. Um, but now I can see that Lord Leggett, in fact, and I think Lord, Lord Leggett is saying that we shouldn't be insisting that Muslim women have to remove their veils. None of this actually makes any difference. It isn't. Judges might think it's helpful to see someone giving evidence, but actually it doesn't really make much difference. I have to say, from my point of view, and you will have been in the same experience, of course, when you're sitting in court and your client is in the witness box giving evidence. Um, firstly, it's a, it's a nerve wracking time. And you certainly feel that there are times when when the truth doesn't come out, not because they're lying, but because they're just too wound up to hear the questions and answer them logically and sensibly. But I do also think that you get much more of a feel for the case because, of course, the statements have all been drafted by the lawyers. The statements may be their evidence in chief, and they are the truth so far as the lawyers can identify it. But there is a real difference between that and what the witnesses say. So maybe it's not their demeanour, but maybe what they say orally does matter. It's a, it's a package. Isn't it? And, and of course, Lord Leggett did, did recognise the irony of it. Then saying, well, we don't need to look at demeanour. I... I, I I'm with you. I think it still plays a part, um, certainly in looking at how a witness behaves, because like you said, the witnesses, the statements, maybe a sort of a polished version of the truth. Uh, because I thought another interesting point that Lord Leggett made, it wasn't by any means the main part of his speech, but it was one of his introductory points, is that oral evidence is becoming less important because we now have so much contemporaneous documentary evidence and in this case, where we had thousands of WhatsApp messages, the only problem we had was that the sheer volume of evidence, it was very difficult to get a flavor of that across to the judge because there was so much and it was so contradictory as to whether they were being pleasant or unpleasant, who was being unpleasant at different times. The judge found that there was psychological abuse on both sides. The wife gave as good as she got. So I mean, 
but it was so the difficulty was the volume but the fact of that contemporaneous evidence in a way did mean that the oral evidence became less important but i think that was the real reason why the oral evidence was less important because we knew exactly what these two people were saying to each other throughout the years when the wife said they were reconciled and we knew it because they had written it down in whatsapp messages that were there in front of the court and that I agree with Lord Leggett that, in fact, that is the main reason why oral evidence may actually come to have less significance. Yes, in, in cases, of course, where there is that contemporaneous evidence, I do do think, and I'm sort of defending my barrister role here, that there's there's still a role for cross-examination, um, not just because barristers secretly enjoy it, but probably because it's also useful for the judge. I'm sure, I'm sure you're right. But, I mean, I have to say I, I would have thought that the barrister's primary role is in you know, the position statement. It's, it's in your submissions. It's helping the judge find their way through this massive evidence, massive paperwork. And certainly that was the case here. The, the barristers were very much working, in a sense, in a team with the judge, because all the way through the case, he was asking lots of questions. Wherever he had not just questions about the facts of the case, but lots of questions about the law, because he was so determined to get chapter and verse on the law, he was sending us away to do our homework each night and, and to comment on different cases that he had been looking at overnight. So it really was a very, it was a demanding exercise, I think, for all those of us involved, particularly the judge, because he was absolutely determined to not leave any stone unturned in, in the law in particular to make sure he got that right. Well, um, I, I'll, I'll let you given that you've had that exhausting exercise uh, so recently. Thank you so much, Sarah. Really, really interesting. It's been a privilege to have you on here. Thank you, Mark. Um, and um, coming soon, listeners, we have podcast NFTs, <laughs> and we'll be speaking to His Honour Judge Hess, the latest <laughs> in the Financial Remedies Court. So please do tune in. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Sarah, again. And goodbye. Thank you.